Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. N.K. Jemisin's short story, The Ones Who Stay and Fight, found in How Long Till Black Future Month, is clearly and deliberately a response to a classic short story by Ursula K. Le Guin, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. And she tells us that in the very introduction, she says that The Ones Who Stay and Fight is a pastiche of and reaction to Le Guin's story. And then in a very important interview in Paris Review, she's going to tell us that the city Um Halat is really a response to that city of Omelas that is going to also come up within the story itself where she says, this is Um Halat after all and not that barbaric America. So there's a contrast between our mode of living and the mode of living narrated in this story. And then she says, this is not Omelas, a tick of a city, fat and happy with its head buried in a tortured child. And if you don't know Ursula K. Le Guin's story, there is this utopian city, Omelas, and she's narrating a festival that takes place and the coming of age that each of the citizens of Omelas have to go through where they are brought to see a damaged essentially tortured child who will never understand the reason for its suffering. Just one, and its suffering cannot be alleviated. And they are told that this is the price of the beauty, the harmony, the way of life that they enjoy. And Jemison is going to call this in that interview, Le Guin's gut punch. And she says, this is actually something great about the story. Le Guin confronts us with an allegory for, according to Jemison, the capitalist society that we live in, where no matter what, whatever joy, whatever happiness, whatever security we have is predicated on exploiting somebody, on somebody else's suffering, right? So some people could leave Omelas and perhaps start their own society elsewhere, or as she says, live off the grid. And Jemison is going to reject that and say, what we want to think about is what a true utopia would actually look like, a, a society that's truly inclusive, egalitarian, good for all people. Can we have a society that not only removes the negative, the traces of violence, of irrational discrimination, of exploitation, of cruelty, of suffering, or at least alleviate suffering. Can we have that? And can we go beyond that to something that is truly joyous and not necessarily blissful, but meaningful? And so that is where we begin with this festival that she's narrating and using essentially as a background. And like Omelas, is this really a short story or is this more of an essay? Well, it's set in a narrative framework and there is a story going on within it, but it's a story that's writ large, telling us about the nature of this society. And we, we do also have the narration of how wonderful this festival is. And we get to see depicted what kind of a city 
this is like. So what is Um Halat? It is a city of joy, of happiness, of care, of love. These positive terms are used over and over again. Here's one beautiful line. This is no awkward dystopia where all are forced to conform. Adults who refuse to give up their childhood joys wear wings too and theirs tend to be more abstractly constructed. Uh, the children wear wings, right? And she says, they are honored for this choice. Even those who don't wear wings, don't want wings, whose faith forbid the emulation of beasts. They're honored for this choice. For without contrast, how does one appreciate the different forms that joy can take? Myriad possibilities of joy for all of the different people. And she goes on and she says, oh, and there is such joy here, friend. She gives examples. Street vendors sell tiny custard-filled cakes shaped like jewel beetles, and people who've waited all year wolf them down while sucking air to cool their tongues. Artisans offer cleverly mechanized paper hummingbirds for passerbys to throw. The best one blurs as they glide. As the day goes long, Umhalat's farmers arrive, invited as always to be honored among the city's merchants and technologers. By all three efforts does the city prosper. Here in Umhalat, there's no hunger not among the people and not even for the migrating birds and butterflies. And they talk about these encounters that people have with each other. A man who's somewhat embarrassed about the ladybug that he's made and a woman sees it and smiles and makes much of it. She points and others see it too, which makes him blush. But there is only kindness and genuine pleasure in the smiles. And gradually the reedy man stands a little taller, walks with a wider stride. He has made his fellow citizens happier. And there is no finer virtue by the customs of this gentle, rich land. Isn't that a beautiful vignette to illustrate in narrative this principle? She goes on and she says, joyous. It is a steady joy that fills this city, easy to speak of, but most difficult to describe accurately. And then she's going to talk to her interlocutor, who we'll mention in a bit, and says, I can see the incredulity in your face, thinking about this kind of joy. She goes on and says, this is Umhalat, a city whose inhabitants simply care for one another. That is a city's purpose, they believe, not merely to generate revenue or energy or products, but to shelter and nurture the people who do these things. We should pause for a moment and think about that line. This is a city's purpose. This takes us all the way back to ancient political philosophy where Aristotle could say that the reason we have a polis, a political community, a city, is not just to live, not to manufacture things, but to live well, to Eudzain. Now, of course, the city that Aristotle spent much of his life in as an out-of-towner, literally a non-citizen, was a city based on slavery and many different forms of exploitation, right? But there's a glimmering of that. And in Umhalat, this is a city where people are trying to live well. And what does that include? Joy, happiness, care, love, these positive things. They're also smart. 
in a way that we often aren't. There's a kind of prudence here, right? She says, what have I forgot to mention? It's the thing that will seem most fantastic to you, friend, the variety. The citizens of Umhalat are so many and wildly different in appearance and origin and development. And she goes down and says, there are differences between people. There are darker people doing more menial trades, but they're trying to correct this. Why? Because the people of Umhalat are not naive believers in good intentions as the solution of all ills. There are no worshipers of mere tolerance here, nor desperate grovelers for that grudging pittance of respect, which is diversity. Um, Haladians are learned enough to understand what must be done to make the world better and pragmatic enough to actually enact it. And now we get to this interlocutor, right? Her angry interlocutor, first incredulous and then getting upset with her. She goes on and she says, does this seem wrong to you? It shouldn't. The trouble is we have a bad habit encouraged by those concealing ill content of insisting people already suffering should be afflicted with further unnecessary pain. And then she's going to say something that's going to show up a little bit later in these social workers. That's the paradox of tolerance, the treason of free speech. We hesitate to admit that some people are just evil and need to be stopped. That is part of this being pragmatic enough to do what is going to make a good society, to oppose evil, to stay and fight. Now, the interlocutor becomes angry with her, right? She goes on, how does Umhalat exist? How can a city possibly survive, let alone thrive? And then she puts words in her interlocutor's mouth. It can't be, you say, utopia. How banal. It's a fairy tale, a thought exercise. Crabs in a barrel, dog eat dog, oppression Olympics. It would not last, you insist. It could never be in the first place. Racism is natural. So natural, we will call it tribalism to insinuate that everybody does it. Sexism is natural and homophobia is natural and religious intolerance is natural and greed is natural and cruelty is natural and savagery and fear and, and impossible, you hiss, your fists slowly clenching at your sides. How dare you? What have these people done to make you believe such lies? What are you doing to me to suggest that it is possible? This is the response that many people have to suggesting that something like this could be possible. Possible not just in the sense of an afterlife or a mere imagined utopia, as she says, a thought experiment, but that our world could be transformed to be something like this. And she says, how else can I convey this to you when even the thought of a happy and just society makes you angry. A city like this, you're saying, goes against nature, goes against how human beings are. And she says, it's almost as if you feel threatened by the very idea of equality, people being genuinely equal. Almost as if some part of you needs to be angry, needs unhappiness and injustice. And then says, is that really the case? Do you need this? What's going on with you? that you actually do need this. And this is a suggestion to the rest of us as well. Do we need something like that? Not only do we in inhabit a world in which inevitably we end up hurting other people, but does that stem from a need deep within us that makes us unwilling to think 
of a better place. Now we get to these characters that she calls something like social workers. So think of them as that, if you like, their role is no different from that of social workers anywhere. Word has come of a troubling case, and this is why they gather to discuss it and make a difficult decision. Why? Well, because Um Halat is actually able to receive signals from another world. Now, the only world that they actually can get is our world. And so as she goes on, she says that we can't travel to this. They wouldn't travel to it anyway, but they can actually listen on equipment which records minute quantum perturbations excited by signal wavelengths to our radio. You can watch our television. You can follow our social media, play our videos, like our selfies. We're remarkably primitive compared to Umhalat. Time flows the same in both worlds, but they have not wasted themselves on crushing one another into submission. And that may makes a remarkable difference. Anyone can do it. Build a thing to traverse the world, at least in terms of information. What does this do? Well, these social workers are there, as she says, to ensure the happiness and prosperity of their fellow citizens. And how do they do this? The people who, in fact, go between in, in this way wind up corrupting themselves and could be corrupting the society itself. As she, she writes, there's an entire underground industry in Umhalat crime built around information gleaned from the strange alien world that is our own. Pamphlets are written and distributed. Art and whispers are traded. The forbidden is seductive, is it not? Even here where only things that cause harm to others are called evil, the information gleaners know what they do is wrong. They know what destroyed the old cities in this world before. And this is something that all the Umhalat citizens, when they reach a certain age, have to learn about. And it's foreign to them. What is foreign? For example, the young citizens of Umhalat are shocked by the realization that once differences of opinion involve differences in respect, that once value was ascribed to some people and not others, that once humanity was acknowledged for some and not others, that some people were dehumanized that some people were treated with contempt. As she mentions, difference could lead to contempt, but difference was never the problem in and of itself. Instead, it's what we do with that difference. And so these social workers, what do they do? They root out the sickness, the evil of sharing these ideas, the contagion, as we call it. And going on with this, these people are not like through and through evil, but they become contaminated with it, poisoned by it, right? They begin to perceive that ours is a world where the notion that some people are less important than others has been allowed to take root and grow until it buckles and cracks the foundations of our humanity. How could they? these people exclaim, of us, us earthers. Why would they do such things? How can they leave those people to starve? Why do they not listen when that one complains of disrespect? What does it mean that these ones have been assaulted and no one, no one cares? Who treats other people like that? They're shocked. But even amidst their shock, they share the evil, the evil spreads. Allowing these ideas into full circulation will inevitably lead to people behaving in that way. And umhalat will come to resemble its own past and our present. And so what do we find? The social workers kill this man. They kill him painlessly, quickly, but he has a daughter. 
a daughter who sees him stabbed through the heart with a pike. And this daughter is also herself deeply contaminated. She says, I'll get back at you. I'll make you die the way you made him die. Something is very wrong here. She snarls, how dare you? How dare you? Much like the angry interlocutor, right? The social workers exchange looks of concern. Now notice what she says here. They are contaminated themselves. Of course, it's permitted and frankly unavoidable in their line of work. The social workers know that for incomprehensible reasons, this girl's father has shared the poison knowledge of our world with her. An uncontaminated citizen would have asked why after the initial shock and horror because they expect a reason. There would be a reason. But this girl has already decided the social workers are less important than her father and therefore the reason doesn't matter. She believes the entire city is less important than one man's selfishness. Poor child, she is nearly septic with the taint of our earthly world. But they take her and they put her into a quarantine. And like it says, there's only one treatment for this toxin once it gets into the blood, fighting it. Tooth and nail, spear and claw, up close and brutal. No quarter can be given, no parole, no debate. The child must grow and learn and become another social worker, fighting an endless war against an idea. But she will live and help others and find meaning in that if there's a choice to be made here, if she takes the woman's hand. And then talking back to the interlocutor, Jemison says, does this work? For you at last, friend, you person who wants to reject this utopia, does the possibility of harsh enforcement add enough realism? Are you better able to accept this post-colonial utopia now that you see its bloody teeth? But they didn't choose this battle. Their ancestors did when they spun lies and ignored conscience in order to profit from another's pain. Their greed became a philosopher, a religion, a series of nations, all built on blood. Um Halat has chosen to be better. But it too must perform blood sacrifice to keep true evil at bay. A utopia still requires sacrifice. A utopia still requires opposition. But there's a lot of scope for all of these great things there. And then she closes with something very interesting where the contamination can go a different way. So the citizens of Umhalat who have to be either killed or become social workers are contaminated by learning of our world. A similar thing can happen as we learn about theirs as we read and think about this story. She says, see what I've done? So insidious these little thoughts going both ways along the quantum path. Perhaps you will think of Umhalat and wish, desire, right? Now you will finally be able to envision a world where people have learned to love as they learned in our world to hate. Perhaps you will speak of Umhalat to others and spread the notion farther still. It's possible. Everyone, even the poor, the lazy, the undesirable, can matter. Do you see how just the idea of this provokes utter rage in some? That's infection defending itself. Because if enough of us believe a thing is possible, then it becomes so. It becomes possible, not yet actual, but it becomes an option for us. And so this story itself could have a kind of contaminating effect, could it not? Utopian literature isn't just castles in the sky, so to speak, or a city in the sky. It's something that can change the way that you and I approach each other and other people and our future possibilities. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. 
You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.